This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Tala Beg to talk about a new-to-me organization, the Integrity Institute. On this show, I've spent a lot of time talking about what I see as a new workforce emerging in the tech sector, of people working in jobs in the tech industry to try and understand, assess, and mitigate some of the harms caused by technologies. That's why I was excited to learn about the Integrity Institute, a cohort of engineers, product managers, researchers, analysts, data scientists, operations specialists, policy experts, and more, who are coming together to leverage their combined experience and their understanding of the systemic causes of the problems of the social internet to help mitigate these problems. They want to bring this experience and expertise directly to the people who are theorizing, building, and governing the social internet. So I wanted to talk to Tala who hosts the Trust in Tech podcast at the Institute about the concept, the function, and the future of integrity work. Tala Beg is an expert on using machine learning to address platform integrity issues. He has spent three years as a machine learning engineer reducing human, drugs, and weapon trafficking on Facebook Marketplace. He has insider knowledge of how platforms use AI for both good and bad, and shares his thoughts on his new podcast, Trust in Tech, where he has in-depth conversations about the social internet with other platform integrity workers. They discuss the intersection between the internet, society, culture, and philosophy with the goal of helping individuals, societies, and democracies to thrive. Hi, Tala. Hey, Deb. So, Tala, in preparing for this conversation, I was really excited to learn about the work of the Integrity Institute and the community of engineers, product managers, researchers, analysts, data scientists, operations specialists, policy experts, and more coming together in, and I'm going to use the Integrity Institute's own terms, an attempt to explore and understand the, quote, systemic causes of problems in the social internet and how to mitigate them. That's the end of the quote. I saw looking at your bio that you recently worked at Facebook, one of the companies that the Integrity Institute specifically calls out in its concerns about the way that the social internet operates and causes damage. So I want to ask you, what led you to the Integrity Institute? I mean, most of us who think about the intersection of ethics and tech understand Facebook to be at the core of some of the major issues at stake in that context. So without asking you to speak directly about your experience, unless you want to, I'd be curious to learn what led you from working in big tech to wanting to advance a discourse that is at times adversarial or critical of it. So there's a couple of ways that we can start with this. So one is these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So working at big tech and also wanting to advance the discourse can work together. I'd also want to separate out the tech techno capitalists, which are the people that own the companies and generally speaking, run the companies at a higher level. And I want to separate, separate them from people that are integrity workers. So people that are essentially keeping these companies from destroying itself and maybe destroying the world in the process. So that's like two distinctions I want to make. So in terms of how I went from working at Facebook, now Meta, to running the podcast now for Integrity Institute is when I was at Meta, I knew I wanted, Meta has this thing called a bootcamp. So essentially for the first eight to 10 weeks, they are letting you decide what team you want to work on. And there's a lot of teams that you can choose from. So there's the elections integrity team. There's like random growth teams, there's a notifications team. I knew I wanted to work on something that I could morally align myself with. So I ended up choosing this team that's called Marketplace Integrity. So Marketplace Integrity was looking at all the content that gets posted on Facebook Marketplace and making sure it complies with our policies. So this could include removing pet sales, removing terrorist content, removing guns, removing human trafficking, removing drugs. So that type of content moderation. It also includes removing actors for doing frauds and scams and generally keeping the marketplace a healthy ecosystem. Now in this work, one can get a little lonely, especially because the workers that you're working with aren't necessarily aligned to societal value. They're more aligned to fiscal value. 
So you end up fighting a lot internally because you're you're the Debbie Downers, right? You're the ones that are saying you can't launch this because it's going to lead to something bad. Maybe reshares aren't necessarily a good thing because reshares tend to propagate misinformation at a much higher viral rate. You're This is the type of people that you are, right? You're the ones that essentially regulate from with from inside. So you end up being a bit lonely and the Integrity Institute was is the community I, I stumbled across and have grown to love and appreciate because it's all of us kind of banding together and saying we're here for each other. Um, we hear we're some we're sometimes lumped in with like the big tech people. We're sometimes lumped in with the with the ethics people, but we are our own little sub niche within each of them. Well, there's so much there that I want to jump into, um, especially uh, about what is happening to uh, integrity workers in tech right now and integrity teams. All of us are watching, for example, Twitter disband its integrity teams. Um, all of us are watching members of the tech workforce who work on things like integrity protections, critical analysis of responsible AI be let go from those jobs as companies, I think, both uh, look to kind of tighten their belts um, and also as the, I think, demand for profits has escalated since Twitter started laying off these particular employees and, and has seen its stock price certainly translate that into some gain for financial shareholders. So this is to say, many questions have just come up in response to what you said, but maybe before we jump into that, we should um, first establish what the Integrity Institute is. So what is the Integrity Institute broadly? What does the group functionally do? I mean, I, I think I grasp what you describe it as uh, in terms of a cohort, but what does it functionally do? In the collective that you've described, uh, how do you guys work together? And, and what kind of impact do you see yourselves making? So I can start off a bit with addressing the layoffs, and I think we can tie the Integrity Institute into that. So what we saw in during the pandemic uh, specifically was we saw an influx of hiring, right? When people can't hang out in physical spaces, they'll end up hanging out with each other in digital spaces. So we saw a bunch of Twitter, Facebook, everyone's stock just skyrocketed, right? Now we're coming to the point in 2022 with inflation and with other economic trends that these companies are realizing that they can't just be spending money like this and they're looking to reduce cost centers. Now, what does reducing cost centers mean? They tend to think that integrity workers are cost centers, right? We are the ones that are preventing product launches. We are the ones that are content moderating. So we're reducing the amount of content on the platform. We are the ones that are really trying to tie everything together. And that's essentially a cost center for the company, right? We're not profit generating. Now, how does that tie into the Integrity Institute? And what does the Integrity Institute do? Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not in charge of the Integrity Institute, nor am I part of its like founding charter. I'm only a member there, so I can speak on that end. But from my perspective, what the Integrity Institute is, is essentially a way for workers to find solidarity with each other, especially after they have been laid off. And it's a way for, for people that are outside the platforms to understand or understand briefings of what the platforms look like from inside themselves. So more people are educated on what integrity workers do. And it's a way that integrity workers can share best practices with each other. So they know what is the best way to mitigate specific harms. So I want to go back to this idea of the integrity worker. And definitionally, um, it's very interesting for me to hear that term integrity worker. I don't know if you know this, Tyler, but over the past couple of years, I've been working as a part of the National Science Foundation grant uh, that my team and I received as an award in 2021 to establish and, and understand uh, an emerging profession we were arguing called responsible or ethical technology and mm -hmm. to try and understand what the kind of workers in that sector look like, what kinds of backgrounds they have, what kind of skills those hiring are looking for. And I'm curious about that term itself, integrity worker. So you say that one of the aims of the Integrity Institute is to kind of coalesce and create uh, support for those kind of integrity workers, and then to also trade information so that those kinds of integrity workers, that is to say people in tech working to mitigate harms and provide possible protections and to assess the risks of tech, have a collective of other folks who they can 
learn from and, and whose work they can collectively contribute to. So my circle, uh, we talk a lot about responsible technology or ethical technology jobs. Responsible tech is the name preferred by All Tech is Human, which runs the Responsible Tech Job Board. Um, sometimes we talk about public interest technology jobs, and that's the name given to this category of work by the Public Interest Technology Network. So are we talking about the same jobs and the same kind of work across these three categories? I guess I'm kind of interested in the terminology integrity work itself, but I'm also interested in whether or not integrity work in your view is something specific apart from or aside from uh, public interest technology, responsible technologists or uh, ethical technologists. Is integrity work in your view something specific? A and why pivot around the idea of integrity in the first place? What does the word integrity specifically mean such that this is the name and, and the kind of uh, concept around which this group is pivoted? So I can start with defining integrity. Now I'm going to caveat and say, if you asked different members of the Institute or as the founders of the Integrity Institute, the term integrity is still not clearly defined and that's what makes it a very new field but i will go forth with my definition of what an integrity worker is an integrity worker to me is someone that is working on a platform that has significant power or it can also be a startup but a platform that has global reach essentially and this specific worker is someone that is a engineer maybe that is working on new features for content moderation or abuse prevention, or digital media literacy, or making sure something is more transparent. So that's some of the different roles or some of the different problems that they work on. Some of the different roles could include a product manager that is working on, instead of understanding the, what the users want or what problems the users want solved, they are looking at, okay, so this is how this bad actor can game the system such that Russian disinformation gets spread more. And then the product manager goes into this inside the head of these adversarial actors and is trying to understand is what levers, what is what are the motivating factors behind these adversarial actors and how are they trying to harm our users by exploiting our platform. So for example, security is more, hey, we don't want someone hacking into our system. Whereas these product managers or policy experts or legal experts are more, we don't want people on the platform to abuse each other. Essentially, what an integrity worker is, is anyone on a platform specifically thinking about how do we prevent users from the platform from harming each other and trying to design a more pro-social internet based off of that. So as we've already discussed, the recession has really in particular imperiled these kinds of workers. And you know, when I collected the data for the National Science Foundation grant that I worked on, which was looking at the growth of that profession, that was pre the recession in tech, which really happened, you know, kind of as soon as Elon Musk hit the buy button on the Twitter auction. So, you know, I guess uh, I've been kind of turning over in my mind that argument that I had put forth in the pre-Twitter Elon Musk moment about the growth of these jobs, which shortly, again, after Elon Musk purchased of Twitter, and I don't want to claim that that was the catalyst for this, but it certainly was, if not causally related, then correlated with that recession, I started to you know, really see a drop in not just the amount of jobs advertised and available, and not just the amount of hiring happening, but actually the amount of workers in that industry and in that sector. So I wonder how you're thinking about integrity work and its impact as imperiled in this particular moment. In the context of Twitter, we have seen that Musk has cut jobs particularly related to safety and protection, precisely the kinds of work that you're talking about, about mitigating harms. With so much of this workforce cut, and with big tech slashing budgets and doubling down on efforts to maximize profits, do you see integrity work at any point recovering its toehold in the industry? If I am indeed correct that it has lost or at least is slipping in its grasp in the industry. If so, when do you think that that recovery might happen? And why do you think this recovery might happen if you do think it will? So to start off, I am not a fortune teller and I don't know where the economic winds are going to take us. So I can start off by saying that there is this myth that integrity work is non-essential and is a cost center. And that myth is false, essentially. 
for any platform to have good sustainable growth, it's in the business interest of platforms to ensure they're not getting regulated, to ensure that their users are having a good experience, to ensure that integrity workers have jobs there. So this is a counterproductive notion that's also really perpetuated a lot by activists and investors and not activists in the sense that they want good for the world, but activists in the sense that they'll somewhat take over the company and lay off a bunch of people, bring value to the shares and leave. So that's one myth I wanted to dispel. And unfortunately, this myth is becoming reality as they lay off more and more workers. So that's one part of it. And I also do want to mention it's not just Twitter. Meta also just had another round of layoffs last Wednesday, I think. And in that one, they laid off a bunch of more integrity workers. I think part of the civic in integrity team just got destroyed. And now in terms of your question of how do we get people back onto hiring more integrity professionals, it's a multi-stakeholder thing, right? It's more, it's more about incentives. How do we how do we convince the business owners or the corporations that they need integrity workers? How do we convince policymakers and regulators that someone from the inside should be there as well, right? Or maybe they need to be more held to transparency and audits. So there's a lot of going, there's a lot going on here. I can't for sure say that integrity work will come back, right? But Maybe it'll come back once the fires restart. It's very easy to measure how big the fire is once it started, but it's very hard to measure stopping a fire when it's still a still a little flame, ember. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating uh, for me. When I started that work with the NSF, we really were seeing a, a trend of not just integrity workers or responsible tech workers or ethical tech workers or public interest tech workers growing in terms of their toehold in the industry and in terms of the amount of jobs available and in terms of the amount of companies seeking to hire people in that sector. But I really thought we were seeing a turnaround in the industry where we weren't perhaps seeing leaders in the tech industry think more responsibly, but we were certainly seeing um, consumers align their purchasing habits with companies that they thought were behaving in ways that aligned with their values or things like corporate responsibility. And regulation seemed to be turning in that area as well to kind of promote a series of feedback loops whereby financial best interests seemed to be aligned uh, for companies with doing responsible or public interest technology maneuvers. I'm not sure that we're seeing that anymore. I think that demonstrably what the cuts to these companies in terms of their employment, uh, in terms of cutting integrity work has done, essentially, is it has given a proof case for the idea that you can actually become very lucrative and financially profitable, not by aligning yourself with corporate responsibility, but in fact, cutting it. And that you can actually just substitute the language of things like diversity, equity, and inclusion for its actual practice, and there won't be any consequences. So witness for example, the Levi Strauss decision in the terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion to use AI models to populate their ad campaigns rather than hiring actual brown and black people to do that work. And there really are no consequences. So you can use Levi Strauss, I assume, has demonstrated the language of responsibility without any of the practice of it and, and be okay and save a ton of money. So I'm really skeptical as to whether or not this moment, which I think is cutting a lot of the protections, has really proven anything because we, I think we're seeing some of the harms, but we're not seeing any of the costs to the companies. And if what you're arguing is the case, which is that these protections are actually in the company's best interest is demonstrably not true in terms of what their profits show. Are they going to continue to do it? <laughs> so I will say in the short term, it might not be in the company's best interest when all they're trying to do is essentially just pump up the stock price. But in the longer run, there's 2024 is coming up. 2024 is going to be one of the biggest global elections or amount of global elections at the same time in maybe the history of social media ever. So I know. India is having an election, the US is having an election, and that in of itself is already like almost 2 billion people. So in the in the short run, it might be okay, but in the long run, it's like everything is okay until everything is not okay. It's, it's, it's a cost center to spend money on cybersecurity 
until you get hacked. Then in the long run, you wish you had had that cybersecurity so you didn't get hacked and you didn't get your software held for ransom, essentially. So, so one thing it is definitely very, it is in the long run healthier for the ecosystem of the platform to have these integrity workers. But then also you're going to need other stakeholders like the public, you're going to need the government, legislators, policymakers, or regulators to essentially come in and say, no, you have to, you, you have to give us concrete measurables on what you're doing right now. And you're going to have to give us concrete measurables on this is the amount of fake news on your platform per over year over year or month over month. And when you see integrity workers fired and the amount of fake news goes starts climbing up, then once you have the actionable metric, you can really chase down these platforms. So I want to push on this a little bit because, you know, everything you're saying makes sense to me. And I see yeah. a lot of consensus on the kinds of conversations that we're having, the kinds of assertions that you're making among some tech workers and, of course, uh, among tech critics and academics, where I have a harder time permitting these premises, such as you've stated, to have a kind of efficacy is in tech leadership. So I find myself frequently having a very difficult time talking to leaders in the tech space about responsible innovation. I think that there are some leaders who truly are earnestly curious, but most of them either A, don't think that it is the responsibility of tech companies to consider the social good as a specific variable in their calculations about what tech to promote, but rather that they should build whatever can, quote, disrupt the market, make a profit, anything that they can do without breaking the law or gain market dominance, or B, leaders who refuse to or reject arguments about the social damage of their products. So for example, I was talking to somebody working on LLMs that is large language models, the most prominent example of which is currently ChatGPT. And I pointed out a concern that many of us share, which is that ChatGPT will eliminate jobs in an entire workforce around writing, not just an entire workforce alone, but also the pipelines to certain forms of expertise. So to elaborate that on a little bit, what ChatGPT will almost certainly invariably devalue is not just the work of writing, for example, people who write marketing content, but also the social value of writing overall. So when ChatGPT can generate writing, how many people want to go and get a degree in literature or in journalism? How many universities are going to continue to employ professors of English, literature or writing, or have writing requirements when there's no longer a value to the most basic form of writing? And, and most higher level writing, and this is the consequence of all of this, which ChatGPT probably can't reproduce, um, will still happen. But how can it happen when there's no market value for low-level writing? So who's going to want to value or work to gain those kinds of skills? And then the downstream consequence of that is that most people have to start with low-level writing in order to support themselves financially to ultimately create a portfolio and go into higher-level writing. So if you cut off that pipeline, you cut out the possibilities for people to develop the kind of skills that would allow them to essentially be in the profession. So I realize this is a kind of a lengthy example. And to be clear, I think that ChatGPT does have potential value elsewhere, um, even as it may cause damage in certain places. But the point is that when I explain this to somebody working on ChatGPT, they dismiss the concern, saying that ChatGPT will do the lower level work, leaving the same workers to do higher level thought. I think that this is like completely ignorant as to how bureaucracy and capital actually work. I don't think that companies see workers who have skills that they can replace with technology and say, oh, well, let's just have them do higher level things. I think that what they do is eliminate those workers if those workers are doing things that can be done by machines. And what companies I think will do is use some of that money to pay tech people for software and that they will eliminate workers who are now redundant and that will shrink the job market and completely uh, destroy the value of writing overall. So, you know, for me, I, I look at these tech leaders who are earnestly, I think, telling me this and I, I ask them, uh, did you not watch the movie? <laughs> like there was a movie of this that happened with pretty much every other industry where the work that a certain sector of people were doing has been taken over by machines. We've seen this movie before. We know how it ends, right? So I have an easy enough time convincing people in the industry like you, but I really can't seem to get through to the tech leaders um, who I talked to about this. Is this disconnect something that you've also experienced? And, and if so, what do you see as the disconnect for people in the industry? So I do want to caveat by saying that tech leaders are only one lever to really 
get into nuanced thinking about integrity workers. But I do think, again, this is my view, not necessarily the institutes, but I do think that you do need some legislation and regulation on um, having integrity measures in your product. Now, that's one part of it. Now, the other part of it is you're mentioning have these difficulties with navigating these uh, with against these tech leaders. And 100% you see it in an integrity work all the time. And it's actually something that's very difficult and something that we at the Integrity Institute talk to each other about a lot is when your performance is measured against capitalistic standards. So essentially for integrity, for anyone in tech, or at least an engineer at Facebook, that you're measured against four different axes. You're measured against direction, how much direction you're putting in the product, your people, how well you're working with people, your impact, and your engineering excellence. Now, the thing about impact, right, is it's measured against uniform metrics. So your impact is measured, how much of the metric did you move, right? Now, is it better as an engineer, is it better to let the fire spread a little bit so then you can take down a lot more impact or is it, is it, again, is it better to nip it in the bud before it happens, right? So you see a lot of these fundamentally, these misalignments start happening from, from the performance aspect for the integrity worker and their managers and or leaders. Then you also see a disconnect between what the integrity thing, worker thinks is the right societal thing to do versus what the company or leadership wants to do in terms of maximizing profits. So for example, another one's engagement-based media, right? So for TikTok or for Instagram Reels, the whole value proposition is for Facebook essentially is to one, increase the amount of relevant ads you see so you can click on them more or increase the ad click-through rate. And then two is also to keep you on the platform as long as possible. Now, is that the responsible thing to do? Probably not. And that's something that I want to see. What, what I'm curious what's going to happen with Elon's Twitter is if you're paying for a Twitter and you're not necessarily and you're not necessarily getting curated news feeds to addict you the whole time, I am curious to see how that will end up ignoring all the other bad stuff that's happened to the platform in terms of trust and safety teams. And I think the last thing you mentioned is something about breaking the pipeline for new workers to break into the industry. And for that, I'll say I'm not entirely sure. And that's because we've had a few information revolutions in the past. And those are decent examples onto how um, industries will change. So first you can start with the Gutenberg printing press is before that, the way that anything copy, any type of publication was present was basically copy pasting it through a monastery, right? And then an argument that can be made against the printing press is, hey, we have these monks that need things to do. So let's not make the printing press happen because then they'll have nothing to do. And another information revolution was the telegram. And then another one was the radio essentially too. And another one was smartphones in 2008. And then another one's is now chat GPT. So I guess with all of that being said, I'm not here to diminish the argument that it will be harder to get entry-level jobs. I'm sure, actually, I'm not sure it will be. And I don't know, and I don't have expertise in this area to comment on whether the career pipelines will break down. But and I want to just challenge some of the things you're saying, because I, sure. I think your, your, your point about, for example, the printing press is apt, uh, the idea that monks might not be able to find something else to do was not part of the calculation in terms of whether or not we should use the printing press. But the printing press was not also subject to the kind of capitalism and the kinds of strictures and incentives around infinite growth that currently tech products are subject to. So for example, nowhere in the context of the printing press, to my knowledge, was the idea that what the printing press ought to do is generate infinite amounts of profit for shareholders. That wasn't what the printing press was about. In fact, that wasn't what the radio was about. Most radio at the inception of radio was a public utility. And the laws and regulations around radio were pivoted around the kinds of social value and social protections that radio might 
offer or be restricted by. That is not the case with uh, our current media ecosystem. That's not the case with the social internet. In fact, the social internet and the kind of lobbying and the kind of ideology that undergirded it pushed back on the idea of any kind of social protections or regulation. Though, at the inception of the printing press, there was the idea that this was a social good and that in addition to being a social good, there ought to be protections and, and restrictions around the kinds of things that might not contribute to the social good that the printing press was out. And all of the controversies around the printing press were pivoted around, does this provide social good or social harm? Not what kinds of profits can we maximize from the printing press? Again, not the case today. So I just do want to make that distinction and, and suggest that that's a salient distinction in terms of what's preventing us from doing integrity work or having integrity work gain efficacy or providing a kind of regulatory or legislative infrastructure that might promote integrity work and might allow uh, companies to benefit within certain rubrics of restriction around what damages they might cause. Yeah, that's a really salient point. I think to go back into uh, assessing a technology for public good is in the, I think it was the 1840s or 1850s, something of the sort in the US, you had public hearings whenever a new corporation was being incorporated saying that, yes, you can maximize value on your end, but we're going to hold you to a normative standard as to whether or not this town or city or state wants this technology, well, not necessarily technology, but wants this corporation to exist too. And you kind of saw that being abstracted away to back then to the point where now you can easily make a new corporation or LLC like today, if you really want. So that's more of the, that's more based on the broader movement of more broader movement of atomization, capitalization, abstractization, modernization of how society is going towards. And I generally, I agree with you, right? Like we are not critically assessing what it's not even in the conversation, whether chat GPT should exist or not. I mean, it is, right? Some people want the AI pause to uh, future of life said that they wanted an AI pause. And to that, I'll say that's not a, that's not a horrible idea, actually, but it's very easily replicated. So that's also uh, part of the problem. <laughs> but I, what I will say to that aspect of it is we don't, we're going more and more towards a world where we are maximizing a principle in of itself without normative constraints. So, for example, when you're scrolling TikTok, I think this is a really good example. Uh, really, the most the most like addicting social media per se, right? Is if you compare TikTok to a newspaper, right? They're both essentially they're both essentially media, right? Very different mediums for sure. But and the goal of the newspaper editor is to m make you read as much content on the newspaper as possible, and the goal of the TikTok platform is to also make you engage with the platform as much as possible. Now, where I think this gets strongly bastardized essentially for TikTok is we want you to look at the platform in the goal of making you look at the platform. Whereas a newspaper is we want you to look at the platform or the media to be more informed. Now, in terms of solutions for this, that's where it gets a little bit tougher. I can offer some recommendations on how to make it less addictive, but at a certain point, these technologies don't have another goal. They're not trying to empower you. Maybe ChatGPT is, and that's a whole other discussion, but TikTok is not trying to empower you. TikTok is trying to keep you on the platform to keep you on the platform. And as exactly as like power, and this is very similar to the power analogies where someone can try to acquire power as a means to another end, but then what you end up getting is some actors will, in the accumulation of power, the only metric becomes power. So you, you see these like similarities, similar threads between essentially having addictive social platforms and also having a lot of power. Right. And it's not just power, right? It's, it's, it's money. Um, money. So, yeah. you know, I started off thinking about the ethics of technology and I would say the more and more I've progressed in this, I think more and more about the ethics of capitalism. I'm a capitalist too, uh, so I wouldn't dispute the overall system, but I do wonder about the kind of economic models that tech is disrupting. 
So, you know, that's been my primary concern. I, I actually don't think that the majority of tech innovations that emerge are actually all that technologically interesting or sophisticated. Certainly they're doing, you know, interesting things with math and algorithms. I don't want to dispute that. But I also look at what gets funded and which ideas end up getting capital. And oftentimes they're not technologies that people are asking for or technologies that we need or technologies that might make our society better. They're the ones that are disruptive. And what disruptive does not mean is disruptive in terms of our technological capabilities, but in terms of the economic model that they end up disrupting. So for example, Uber wasn't disruptive because it introduced some sort of magic new technology to the technology universe. It's literally just an app, but as an app, it was enormously disruptive in the sense of disrupting an economic model of transportation. So I'm wondering uh, from your perspective, is uh, ChatGPT a disruptive technology on the technical level, or is it a disruptive technology economically or both? And what does this tell us about the larger tech ecosystem? Because to me, ChatGPT seems like a microcosm of a lot of the kind of issues around technological production and industry uh, and, and questions about the larger role of integrity workers that we're talking about today. Yeah, so to first answer whether ChatGPT is disruptive on a technical level and then also whether it's disruptive on a societal level. So on a technical level, definitely disruptive. I do think that there is a false equivalence between Uber and ChatGPT here. Uber was very disruptive societally, but I don't think technologically it was super um, disruptive. I think Uber, Uber, Uber was, was it used a platform of the disruptive technology, which was the iPhone. And then based on the iPhone, it it basically capitalized on the iPhone. And the iPhone was a true disruption or the smartphone in general was a true disruptive disruption in technological innovation. And then likewise, I do think that ChatGPT is also a disruption in terms of technology in the sense that essentially what they did was here's a chatbot that is a manifestation of the internet and can all basically answer any question that the internet has in a human-like form. So for example, I took some information like a search class and back in school, and there's always this disconnect between what the intent of the user is and what query they give to Google to really make that, uh, to map that intent to the query. And at this point, there is no difference because of ChatGPT. So I do think it is disruptive on that level. There's a lot of problems with the way it was built. So the way it was built is it's going to really overemphasize a Western system, essentially, mostly because as a general maxim, the way that you can tell, not the way, the way that you can organize a developing nation and a developed nation is how much organizational structure those developing nations can withstand. So based on that, what you'll see is that the more there's a strong correlation between writing and amount of development in a nation. And then based on that, you can also understand that the more complex organizations and more developed nations will have more writing and therefore more information on the internet. And not just the most developed nations, but the most, but within the nation, developed nations, there's going to be certain populations that will be on the internet more because they have more resources and more organizational complexity to be on the internet. And what Chappie GPT will do is it's going to represent those populations. So it's going to represent white men in the US, essentially, <laughs> because those are the people that are popular. It's going to represent people that are on Reddit. It's going to represent people that are on Wikipedia. It's going to represent people that generally populate the information, maybe for even SEO articles, because they want more people to be trafficked into their business. So that's the people that ChatGPT will represent. Now, that doesn't answer your question on societal disruption for ChatGPT. What I think ends up happening for any of these major disruptions is OpenAI slash ChatGPT is going to represent the base layer, and there will be different applications on top of this base layer. To bring back to the printing press, what we saw was <laughs> there's the printing press, obviously, and there's the publishers, but then there's also the books that come out of it. And, and from the iPhone, what we saw is there was different smartphones, but there are also like the millions of apps that came out of it. And also, frankly, I guess podcasts also came from the iPod too, right? So that's one part of it. Now from ChatGPT, my hypothesis is that there'll be a few different platforms, one that makes like 
maybe text generation, audio generation, image generation, uh, video generation, and then people will call these platforms or APIs to have their own inventive use cases of ChatGPT. For example, there's this AI right now that takes artists, it basically will make like Drake sing Firework by Katy Perry, <laughs> which I don't think is a good thing, but that is one use case. Uh, or that is one way that people are going to use ChatGPT. Now, do I think that's super inventive or innovative? Not necessarily, but in the capitalist structure that we are in, that is how they're going to maximize the profits from this new disruption technology. So you don't think that's a good thing because you don't like Katy Perry or or Drake or because you love Drake and don't want Katy Perry covering him or because you love Katy Perry? And... <laughs> There's a couple of things that uh, I can go with here. Um, one is that I actually do listen to a lot of lo-fi music. <laughs> so that's it's a little hypocritical for me to say this because when does a filter there's a spectrum of filter to deepfake when is it when does it become ethically ambiguous so that's one part of it the other part of it is is you're separating the art from the artist and that feels wrong and i couldn't i, I i'm this i'm not an ethicist so this is like right like disentangling why it doesn't feel right is does drake want his like voice taken does katie does katie perry does she want her voice does she want her song taken so not that we can't navigate these issues i think it's not the problem isn't the application but even in theory we're not listening to a real person we're not looking at real art and maybe that's fine at a low level but is that what we really want to listen to Be, behind every one and zero i think there should be a person but I'm not sure if that's a very radical statement to make. No, I think that what you're getting to are genuine questions about the nature of both human creativity and the idea of authenticity. Things like copyright law are economic models, but they, at their core, on an ethical level, are also asking questions about how do we define who an idea belongs to? How do we give proper credit to that idea? How do we create ownership structures around creativity? And what does it mean to contribute something new and genuine to the creative ecosystem, right? ChatGPT is engaging in and uh, I think challenging those very formative questions. In fact, I think we might rethink copyright law in the context of those questions. We might rethink what we mean by open source. A while back, the New Yorker wrote an article about Wikipedia and noted that although Wikipedia is a free resource, and in general, we celebrate the idea that information is free and accessible uh, in a kind of unchallenged way. But of course, Wikipedia isn't free. It's free on the end of user access, but somebody's paying somebody for those ideas to be generated. And that those ideas oftentimes uh, remain not just uncredited. Wikipedia, I think, does a better job than most at providing citations and source work and really uh, providing a kind of provisional credit. But it certainly doesn't protect any of the things that we typically attach to the idea of credit, such as economic benefit or um, purview or kind of ownership over one's ideas and work. So I do think that you're asking those kind of really radical, formative, axiomatic questions about how we think of creativity and how we think of authorship. That's the thing, right? What does it mean to have a property right in this case, right? Like who has a property right? Is it, do you have a right to your own voice at this point, right? If Drake can sing anything at this point, is it okay for Drake to sing anything right and if is drake allowed to also sell his voice i guess that's also another question that we want to think about and for the people that are listening how do they know that drake was not the original artist as well so for example in a democracy ideally there's also things that we're not able to sell right we're not able to sell our right to vote because i'm assuming if a lot of people wanted to sell their right to vote they would because they're like i'm an uninformed citizen it's probably better if someone else can get the right to vote and aggregate all my rights to votes and then lobbies can have a lot of rights to votes to sell. Now, the thing is, is do we want something similar where someone is buying up a lot of rights to voices and we build an ownership structure that actually has perverse incentives and outcomes that will basically maybe allow monopolistic structures on people owning faces that are not theirs or voices that are not there or bodies that are not theirs. Yeah, we really have to think through these issues and having thought about it a bit, I just don't, 
see a way in which there is a good outcome from this. Right. And your question about do I you know, care whether it's Katy Perry singing Drake songs or Drake singing Katy Perry songs and, you know, you seem concerned with that particular question. But I also think that that concern is a proxy for the larger concerns that we may have about what it looks like when, for example, somebody from the, the for example, Trump team can use AI to make Joe Biden say all sorts of inflammatory things and then channel that misinformation through kind of propaganda sources or right-wing media. Again, for example, this could happen in ways that might uh, reverse that polarity between Trump and Biden. I I would assume that there may be some actors on the progressive left who may do this as well, although I tend to think of this more as a right-wing tactic, Uh, but perhaps that's my political positionality. But I will say that when we typically listen to things on audio or see an image, we tend to assume the veracity of those things, right? There's a very old axiom, seeing is believing. This idea that what we see sort of has an epistemology of proof or epistemology of evidence undergirding its reality so that we look at an image or we hear a song and we tend to assume its veracity unless we're explicitly told otherwise. This seems to overturn some of that kind of expectation about veracity. I worry that without the digital literacy, it's not just that we might authentically think that think that uh, Drake is singing songs by Katy Perry, but that our entire political ecosystem, indeed, the things that are essential for our social fabric may unravel to really deleterious points. In fact, I think that this is part of what I would argue is imperiling our current civil kind of union in the United States, this question of can we believe what we see? And this alternative ecosystem of factuality very much, I think, mobilized by some of these technologies. Yeah, so I want to maybe backtrack a little bit on this. So I'll I'll get back to this point, but I'll make it a little roundabout. So what you mentioned was essentially specifically targeting different individuals and different key players such that they're basically manipulated into certain beliefs based on deep fakes or other augmentations and general misinformation or any disinformation. So that's one part of it. I will mention that if ad data brokers or platforms did not have as much data on you, then they couldn't make their ads or their targeting so niche. And because they can make it so niche, what you get is this fragmentation of the people that use a social platform such that they're digitally connected, but they're not actually connected. They're they're on the same platform, but they're seeing different things and they're living in different realities. So one concrete recommendation I can actually make is maybe don't have as invasive surveillance mechanisms. And then even if there is a deep fake, it's more likely to be caught by crowdsourcing. So that's so that's one concrete recommendation. Now, in terms of crowdsourcing or these Trump Biden deep fakes that you might get, those are interesting too, right? Because right now we see that content, at least I'll see that content on TikTok, which is Trump and Biden ranking Zelda or having having another conversation. And there's two aspects to that. So one aspect of that is, is that legitimate media literacy? Is this why Gen Z is much more media literate than the rest of the generations? It's because they're constantly bombarded by this information and they're able to, and it effectively acts as a digital vaccine. Or is the some right to someone have their own voice? Is that being infringed, even if it is a big enough public official or public figure? So that's another question we want to ask. Now, going back to 2024, that's where I'm really scared, right? Because in 2024, we're going to have the ability for deepfake voices. We're going to have the ability for deepfake video. We're going to have the ability for deepfake images. And the question is, is how are political actors going to use and exploit, one, the deepfakes, but two, the hyper-targeting nature of social media to essentially say, we're going to win this election through any means necessary. Right. So this is something that keeps me up at night. Is this what keeps you up at night too? Or maybe even more broadly, what are some of the biggest integrity issues that we're currently facing? What are the crucial steps that we need to institute change or avert the kinds of issues that you're talking about? Yeah. So I think the big one, big one is surveillance capitalism. Having everyone have their own little tiny narrative 
I won't even call it, call it a narrative. Having everyone have their own little perception of what reality is, that's dangerous. There's no coherent truth. There's no coherent narrative. So a reduction in surveillance capitalism is definitely one way. Another way is transparency, essentially, right? Is what these companies release transparency reports, but those are not necessarily regulated and they're not necessarily have actual concrete information in them. Sometimes they're just wishy-washy and they'll have some information and they'll obscure the bad information. So that's like another effective measure. Another effective measure is transparency on who the advertisers are or who the workers are or who the users are. So any type of transparency helps because when you have power, just opening that window into how that power is thinking or working or motivating itself. I mean, that's the idea of journalism, right? Journalism is you're opening a window into the institutions and powers such as like Congress, C-SPAN <laughs> exists, right? So maybe a C-SPAN should exist for the private actors that don't just determine the behavior of one jurisdiction, but all the jurisdictions in the world. Right. And I'm totally with you in terms of the ethics and the values, but you know, you're pointing out the dangers of surveillance capitalism, particularly in, in the terms of the surveillance and the consequences of the surveillance. But the other part of it, of course, is that it is tied to the capitalism part. And just to go back and revisit some of that conversation that we've already previously had, one of the reasons that I'm really cynical about the possibility of kind of a transformation in, in the industry or turn toward integrity is because of the centrality of productivity or efficiency in the engineering and so when you're talking about the kind of uh, data collection, the reason that that data collection, that data surveillance is used is because it's highly profitable. It's also highly efficient. It's uh, much easier to be efficient with your sales if you have micro-targeted ads collecting data and understandings about who you're marketing toward. So when I talk about the relationship between capitalism and the tech sector, I'm really talking about the centrality of efficiency in the world of engineering and technological production. And so, you know, sometimes when I talk about this, I use the example of Soylent. An engineer comes up with Soylent to answer the problem he felt that he and other engineers face, which is how do you get a more efficient nutritional delivery system that eliminates the need to get up from work and to prepare, consume, and clean up their after food. Soylent is kind of uh, a perfect answer to the engineer's question of what do I do to be efficient when I'm hungry? Because it best addresses the question, how can I solve being hungry as efficiently as possible? Of course, in reality, many of us don't eat because we're asking an efficiency question about how we get nutrients delivered quickly. We eat because we get pleasure from food or because we want to connect socially with other people by cultivating intimacy of breaking bread or because we want to recreate a recipe of the grandmother we had who had to flee her country and had to leave everything behind. And the only thing that she could recreate of the life that she had there were the foods that she could make using the recipe she had from the old world. And so you eat that food, you cook that food, because cooking that food and eating that food reminds you of your connection to your family and your identity. So we know that the most important things we do in our lives, we do for other reasons and we want to be efficient. No one wants to be loved or cared for efficiently because those values are the opposite of being productive. As you pointed out at the beginning, there's a cost to all of those values in terms of productivity. So I want to accept that efficiency is a value in our lives, but as a value, we have to balance it out against other oftentimes competing values, such as love or care, and in, in service of those values, sacrifice efficiency. But engineering, for the most part, is focused on productivity and efficiency, which conveniently is the same logic as capitalism. So to me, it's kind of no surprise that engineering in our hyper-capitalist moment is so highly valued as a skill and as an industry. But the problem that we see so clearly, I think, or at least that I see clearly, is that these other values, dignity, care, equity, justice, democracy, are also sacrificed in the name of efficiency and that capitalism supports and rewards the sacrifice. So I really don't see any way out of the problems that you're describing as much as I would like to without really rethinking our system of financial rewards and capitalism, which kind of insists on infinite production, infinite growth, and infinite production and growth at the cost to other values as the kind of animating axiom of the industry. So do you see a way out of this without rethinking our fundamental tenets of our financial system? Um, if so, what or how would be the way out? So 
there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> so what I'll start off with is you mentioned your grandmother's like cooking food for to maintain that cultural connection between places that they immigrated from. I totally understand that. My parent, my parents are immigrant parents, and my mom and dad will cook food that will take hours and hours just so they can maintain some aspect of the culture. And I do think that efficiency and productivity are essentially completely opposite of meaning and love, essentially, right? What is it to love someone or what is it to have a meaningful relationship if it isn't actually doing something that requires labor, that requires sacrifice? Because then it's meaningless, right? It's whenever you think of a friend that did that was there for you at a hard time, it was precisely the fact that it was inconvenient for them that made it so meaningful to you. So that being said, is that's how we personally interact with each other. But on a societal level, we are a capitalist society. So what that means is we're going to inf infinitely grow, we're going to infinitely produce, and we're going to try to be as efficient as possible. And I don't know how to reconcile that with the, um, with the micro level things that make us human, right? We're at a point that everything in the US is beholden to the shareholders when they're not necessarily the only stakeholders in the agreement. All of Facebook's decisions are made by Mark Zuckerberg because he owns the company, but is he the one that should uniquely govern the platform? Probably not. It's probably, it should be probably the people that are also users of the platform or people that are in jurisdictions where the platform is. So that's one thing to think about. In terms of how do we proceed forward in a capitalist society for trust and safety or for integrity? I, I don't know either, right? It's you hope for a, you work for a better world, but you also have to live in it. So in this world that we live in, we can do some concrete uh, legislation, which is more privacy uh, legislation so that surveillance capitalism gets mitigated a bit. We can do transparency legislation so that gets mitigated a bit. But in terms of the world we want to create is, do we really want a capitalist structure where a company doesn't have a necessarily have a death where the only way a company can survive is by infinite growth. Otherwise it just goes bankrupt. Do we want a structure where innovations are only, are only valued if they're monetarily valuable as opposed to societally valuable. And I'll give a good example of this is when we had COVID, we just threw money at vaccines and that was the right thing to do. And that led to a, good public outcome. And I think there's a, there's a good magazine on this is Noema really tries to uncover what is like a good future for capitalism in terms of throwing more money on like public interest stuff. In the sixties, we had like 5%, 5 5% of our budget on NASA, maybe not NASA, but maybe we could have 5% of our budget on curing cancer. And then you have, and then you have another concept. I don't remember by who it is exactly, but the book is called The Emission Economy. And what it looks like is instead of winner takes all economies where the next person that's going to, the person that's going to, or not the person, the company or the institution that's going to be the base of AI generation, instead of making it a winner takes all platform, how do we make it such that it's more fragmented? So for example, from a lot of the Scandinavian countries, you don't really see the next Google or Facebook. That's because a lot of them run family businesses that in aggregate their Google Facebook. So maybe it's a good thing you don't see the next Google Facebook from there. So that's the way that we should be thinking about these questions. So are these models of what you think an ethical or responsible integrity driven social internet might look like? If not, or if you have another model in mind, what model would you give to an integrity-driven social internet? Do you think that we can get to that model given our current condition? Yeah. Do you think uh, that? Well, maybe, maybe. I'll put some caveats there. But I do think there are some techno solutions that work. And I do get into some trouble with <laughs> some ethicists that are like techno solutionism isn't the problem, isn't the solution. And generally speaking, I agree, but I think some poison is better than a lot of poison. So <laughs> I'll start off with there is be real right that's a platform where you're supposed to be more authentic with your friends 
And what I found is that did cannibalize some time away from TikTok and Reels for me because all I want to do is I want to talk to my friends or I want to see what they're up to, but I don't necessarily want the feed that comes with it. There is Substack too. And if you listen to how Substack approaches its platforms is they really, or their product is they really want to empower writers to write whatever they want about. And now they have a feed as well, but that feed isn't necessarily bad because the point of that feed isn't necessarily to keep you on that feed. The point of the feed is for writers to have open dialogue with each other. So that you see like some techno solutions here. And then lastly, I'll say you see podcasting. Podcasting has exploded <laughs> over Pew just released a new report on podcasting and it's grown again this year. So there really is this appetite from the, both the consumer's perspective that they want to hear these authentic voices, these long form voices and have these meaningful uh, connections with both creators and their friends. And then also from the con from the producer perspective and the creator perspective where I don't want to have short form content out there and I don't want to be a reel. I don't want to be a photograph. At least I don't want to be a filtered photograph. Or maybe I do, but that's not for the good reasons. <laughs> but I do want to have a relationship with my audience and I do want them to genuinely know me and authentically feel that connection. And I think that it's much harder to, you know, be misquoted or misunderstood through something like a podcast because a podcast is this kind of whole, as you put it, long form article development um, where people to get the context really do have to listen to the yeah. entire product. And the product itself is very difficult to, you know, kind of put out as sound bites. It really is a coherent product that requires a kind of um, attention to it as well. Uh, we think we have time for one or two more questions. So I do want to ask you uh, about this because you wrote it to me in an email and I, I wanted to follow up on it. In that email that you wrote to me that I just cited, you suggested that I might ask you about, and, and I'll quote you here, quote, what it is like being an integrity worker in a work environment annoyed by your mere existence. <laughs> so what is it like? Uh, it's not fun. <laughs> so what you end up, so I'll give you an example of this. I think I touched on this a bit earlier, but when Meta, when Facebook changed its name to Meta, since that point to the next year, maybe early, the early next year. So it changed in November, 2021, I think to sometime in July, 2022, I might be slightly off with the dates, but the general premise is the stock dropped 70%. And when the stock dropped 70%, a lot of the executives their compensation is like 50 to 60 to 70% of it is stocks. So their compensation is being slashed. And when that happens is a lot of the VPs and a lot of the managers and a lot of the directors, they're all moving in and out a lot, a lot of changing parts, a lot of reorganization. So your priorities are changing, your projects are changing. And that is something everyone deals with. But the thing that integrity workers deal with is that is annoying in of itself. But integrity workers tend to get shifted around a lot more because the tech leaders don't really understand how integrity works. And then on top of that, the integrity workers have a different, have a different incentive than the tech leaders. The tech leaders incentive is let's build this platform ASAP. Let's build, let's get as many, many users ASAP. Let's get as much money ASAP. Let us get as, as many advertisers ASAP. Whereas integrity workers are like, we need to work on this so that a problem doesn't happen in the future. There's a fundamental mis uh, misalignment here and they get annoyed because they're like, you're not working on our tire priority. And then we get annoyed because we're saying is if you don't work on this now, then this will be your top priority six or seven months from now. So you're in a unique position when you're an integrity worker and it's a hard one to navigate for sure. I try to ask most of my guests this question. A lot of students and members of the next generation of the tech workforce listen to this podcast. What would you want to tell them or have them know or understand or be aware of or think about as they move forward in their careers, potentially as integrity workers, potentially as workers working with integrity workers and being annoyed by their very presence? This was not maybe as related to integrity work, but it's to really think about live and examine life, <laughs> really be thoughtful about the actions you're taking. Do you have a structured routine? Are you growing in the ways you want to? 
are you thinking about like your carbon footprint? Are you thinking about, are you buying from local coffee shops instead of Starbucks? Are you ordering every book from Amazon? Are you maybe not even in an ethical way, but are you taking care of your mental and physical health and really taking care of those needs? Because you can't really help someone else unless you're healthy yourself. So I think I gave some platitudes there, but what I really want people to come away with is just to be very thoughtful in your everyday action because there are actors that don't want you to be thoughtful. And these actors are precisely platforms because they want you to scroll infinitely. And every time you scroll, that's not something you're doing. That's something that's being done for you. So take control of your life is what I would say. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Move slow and build things. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like Contemplation. <laughs> uh, Tala, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me.